0: a new kind of streaming service that aims to bring you the best documentaries from around the world. On today's episode, the History Guy talks about two impressive Kates of the 19th century. First is Kate Warren, who became America's first female detective when she was hired by Alan Pinkerton in 1856. She may have even saved Abraham Lincoln's life. Then the History Guy talks about one of the women behind one of the most famous gunslingers of the West. Big Nose Kate, the common law wife of Doc Holliday. Without further ado, let me introduce the History Guy.
1: In 1856, 23-year-old Kate Warren entered the offices of the Pinkerton Detective Agency seeking employment. But the agency didn't need any more secretaries. Well, she wasn't there to be a secretary. She was responding to an ad that was seeking detectives. Pinkerton explained to her, it is not the custom to employ women detectives, but she calmly laid out her case that women would be most useful in warming out secrets in many places that would be impossible for men. She convinced him and he hired her and she went on to have a career with the Pinkerton Agency, solving crimes, helping the Union during the Civil War, and at one point possibly saving the life of Abraham Lincoln. The story of Kate Warren, considered by many to be America's first female detective, is history that deserves to be remembered. Little is known about Kate's early life. She was born in 1833 in Erin, New York, but who her family was or what she did up until 1856 is poorly documented. She said she was a widow when she came to apply for the Pinkerton job. There are no positively identified photos of Miss Warren, but Allen described her in his memoirs and in some official Pinkerton documents. She was, he said, a commanding person with clear-cut features, slender and brown-haired. Her features were decidedly of an intellectual cast. Her face was honest, which would cause one in distress instinctively to select her as a confidant. Perhaps it was this quality that convinced Dellen Pinkerton to hire her over his brother Robert's objections. Pinkerton had founded his detective agency in 1850 with a business partner, in part as a response to the need for railway companies to hire outside detectives to solve robberies and embezzlement. Pinkerton had been appointed the first detective in Chicago a year earlier. Pinkerton was born in Scotland in 1819 and came to America with his wife in 1842. He was a staunch abolitionist, and as early as 1844, his cabin in Dundee, Illinois, was part of the Underground Railroad. When she was hired in 1856, Kate was presumably the first female detective in America, and Pinkerton was not so foolish as to not use her. Many of the records of her exploits were lost when there was a fire in the Pinkerton office in Chicago in 1871, but enough remains to illuminate some exciting episodes in her life. In 1858, Kate's services were brought into a case investigating embezzlement in the Adams Express Company. The prime suspect in the case was one Mr. Maroney, who had stolen $50,000 from the company, but the detectives couldn't get enough proof. Kate brought a new angle to the case and befriended Mr. Maroney's wife. In short order, she got the evidence they needed and recovered nearly 80% of the stolen money. By 1860, Kate had so proven herself that Pinkerton placed her in charge of his newly founded female detective bureau, The women in the Pinkerton Agency put themselves at risk as much as the men, changing accents, clothes, and risking their lives in pursuit of their objectives. Called Pinks, many of them would assist the Union during the Civil War. Possibly Kate's greatest success came a year later for her part in investigating the Baltimore plot. In 1861, the Pinkerton Agency was hired by the president of the Philadelphia, Wilmington, and Baltimore Railroad to investigate rumors in Baltimore that secessionists were planning on sabotaging railroads after Lincoln's election. Pinkerton dispatched numerous detectives, including Warren and another female detective, Hattie Lawton. Lincoln's election had already caused significant disruption to the Union. South Carolina had seceded in December of 1860, and six more states would secede before Lincoln was inaugurated. Maryland was in a particularly complex situation. was a border state, one that permitted slavery, but had strong pro-Union sentiments as well. Its nearness to Virginia and strong pro-secessionist ties made it a possibly dangerous state for Lincoln to pass through. In February, Lincoln began a 70-city tour from Illinois to Washington, D.C. that would end with his inauguration on March 4th. Pinkerton spies, including and especially Kate Warren, had discovered evidence of a plot much larger than the one the railroad president had initially suspected. Dissidents in Baltimore, they believed, were planning on assassinating the president-elect. Kate had been working in Baltimore undercover using the names Mrs. Cherry and Mrs. M. Barley. Posing as a southern belle from Montgomery, Alabama, where she'd stayed during the Adams Express Company investigation, she was tasked with cultivating the wives and daughters of suspected plotters. She socialized with high-class secessional circles at parties, wearing a black and white brocade on her breast, which was briefly a symbol of secession. Her infiltration of these societies put together vital evidence of the plot to Pinkerton, though he maintained that his other agents uncovered evidence as well. She heard during her investigations that there was a plot to kill Lincoln when he was forced to change trains in Baltimore. Because of different gauges, it was necessary to switch tracks to port a southbound train to D.C., which would require a carriage ride of about a mile. According to Pinkerton records, Lincoln was to be waylaid as he exited the train to get to his carriage. A row or fight was to be got up by some outsiders, to quell which the few policemen at the depot would rush out, thus leaving Mr. Lincoln entirely unprotected at the mercy of a mob of secessionists. Once he was killed, the conspirators had chartered a boat that was ready to carry them to Virginia. Pinkerton would write in his memoir, A Spy of the Rebellion, that he had met with Cipriano Ferrandini, a Baltimore hairdresser who was the accused leader of the plot. Pinkerton said he met with Ferrandini and several other conspirators at a hotel in Baltimore. When asked, are there no other means of saving the South except by assassination? Ferrandini said, no, he must die, and die he shall, and if necessary, we will die together. Now aware of the plot, Pinkerton rushed to deliver the news to Lincoln, desperate to save his life. On February twenty first, Lincoln met with Pinkerton and an associate. Lincoln was unconvinced that such a plot existed, though he agreed that if it did, it should be taken seriously. Lincoln only agreed to take precautions when his designated Secretary of State, William Seward, reported independently a threat of assassination reported by his son Frederick Seward. But Lincoln, taking seriously his role of steady hand, refused to adjust any of his plans for Harrisburg and stopped before passing through Baltimore. There was some disagreement over how to best protect the president. Lincoln's self-appointed bodyguard, Ward Hill Lamont, butted heads with Pinkerton. Lamont suggested that he would give the president-elect a revolver and a bowie knife, but Pinkerton insisted that he would not for the world have it said that Mr. Lincoln had to enter the national capital armed. Despite disagreements, the plan was put together in time to avoid the plot. Lincoln only deviated from his original schedule beginning at 5.45 on the evening of February 22nd when he left a scheduled and high-profile dinner. Leaving the building, he put on a traveling suit and a soft cap, carried a shawl so he could play the role of an invalid and remain unrecognized. Pinkerton had telegraph lines between Harrisburg and Baltimore cut to prevent any information from getting ahead of them. Lincoln, with Lamont and Pinkerton, met Warren at the train station. She had secured the seats on the train with a cover story that they were for her sick brother and family members. During the night of February 22nd to 23rd, Kate Warren stayed in the car adjacent to Lincoln's and supposedly remained vigilant and awake the entire night. Some stories suggest that this was the inspiration for the Pinkerton's famous tagline, We Never Sleep. The train arrived in Baltimore around 3.30 a.m. The cars were secretly shifted to a new train and Kate remained in Baltimore while Lincoln was taken safely to D.C. His family had remained on the original train, but the crowd that gathered at the station to meet the president the following afternoon were disappointed. Mary Todd and the children had stepped off the train a few blocks short of the station. Later study has brought the entire concept of the Baltimore plot into question. Ward Hill Lamond would argue years later that it is perfectly manifest that there was no conspiracy. No conspiracy of a hundred, or fifty, of twenty, of three. No definite purpose in the heart of even one man to murder Mr. Lincoln in Baltimore. Some historians take Pinkerton's actions as a case of overcaution that he would display in overestimating Confederate forces when he worked under George McClellan during the Civil War. No one was ever indicted for the plot or for planning it, though a number of people were jailed without habeas corpus under suspicion. Cipriano Ferrandini, the supposed plotter, was not tried for the crime, although he would admit to planning to help attack Northern volunteers who passed through Baltimore, as happened during the Baltimore riot in 1861. Lincoln would later regret making the arrangements to sneak through the city as he was lampooned in the press for cowardice throughout his presidency. Kate's role in the investigation and the solution was critical. Not only did she provide indispensable information that helped to uncover the potential plot but she helped carry that information to Lincoln, helped to set up the secret trip, accompanied on the trip, protected him on that trip. If there was in fact a plot she was central to its thwarting In any case, she proved herself to be an able spy, able to infiltrate target groups and to accomplish her objectives undercover. Only nine days after the attack on Fort Sumter, Alan Pinkerton sent a message to Lincoln offering his services. Before Lincoln could respond, however, Pinkerton was contacted by George McClellan, recently made Major General of Ohio Volunteers. Pinkerton and McClellan had crossed paths during Pinkerton's work with various railroad companies. Pinkerton, along with Warren and several other agencies, set up their headquarters in Cincinnati, beginning a military counterintelligence agency that would serve as a prototype for all kinds of agencies, and in part as a direct predecessor to the Secret Service, which was originally created to suppress rampant counterfeiting. During the war, Kate often traveled with Pinkerton on missions, occasionally posing as his wife while they infiltrated southern social circles in Tennessee and Kentucky. Kate went under various aliases, often different versions of her own name, such as Kay or Kitty, Warren, Allen's brother, Robert, disliked the whole ordeal, often arguing with Warren when she turned in her expenses. Robert felt that he was supporting a sordid affair between his brother and Kate, besides the fact that he didn't think that women should be detectives at all. While Kate traveled often and worked closely with Alan Pinkerton, it isn't certain that they ever had a romantic relationship. Pinkerton's work under McClellan has been blamed for the general's timidity during his command. While Pinkerton successfully identified all of the regiments under Lee's command, he also consistently overestimated the size of the Confederate forces they faced. Some of the reports later had their force estimates exaggerated even more, apparently because of McClellan himself. Whoever's fault it was, Pinkerton often butted heads with Lafayette Baker, who was leading a counterintelligence group for Winfield Scott, commanding General of the U.S. Army. Both Baker and Pinkerton would claim to hold the office of Chief of the United States Secret Service. While it isn't clear just what missions Warren participated in during the war, she was certainly involved in important work reporting on the enemy, and it wasn't without peril. Timothy Webster, another one of Pinkerton's agents, was hanged in Richmond in 1862. The Pinkerton's direct work for the war effort ended when McClellan was removed from command of the Army of the Potomac after the Battle of Antietam. After the Civil War, Kate continued to work with the agency to solve crimes. She helped solve the murder of a bank teller who had been killed by a colleague who had stolen $130,000. Pinkerton suspected Alexander Drysdale, but he couldn't prove it. Kate went undercover as Mrs. Potter, and through Drysdale's wife, discovered where Drysdale had hid the money. In a later case, she went undercover as a fortune teller named Lucille to get information, all while supervising the other female agents. Almost certainly, she solved many more cases and did more for the country than we now know, with so many of the records destroyed. She may have continued to do so for years, but she grew sick on New Year's Day, 1868, and died a few days later. Alan Pinkerton was by her side, and he had her buried in his family plot in Chicago, where several other Pinkerton agents are also buried. Headstone says she died of congestion of the lungs. Pinkerton called Kate one of his best five spies, and specifically thanked her and Timothy Webster in his book, The Spy of the Rebellion. When Robert tried to end the practice of hiring women in 1876, Allen sent him a blistering telegram. It has been my principle to use females for the detection of crime where it has been useful and necessary. I can trace it back to the time that I first hired Kate Warren up to the present time. And I intend to still use females whenever it can be done judiciously. I must do it or falsify my theory, practice and truth. When he died in 1884, his sons quickly dismantled the Female Detective Bureau. It would later lead the agency into controversy, change its reputation by siding with companies against labor unions, leading to the Anti-Pinkerton Act of 1893, which still stands and reads that no employee of the Pinkerton Detective Agency or similar agency shall be employed in any government service. In a time when women had few opportunities for paid employment, Kate Warren became America's first detective 35 years before women were allowed to become police officers. She used that opportunity to never waver from her profession, to never shy away from danger. It's a tragedy that we know so little about what she did because of the loss of the records. But in some way, it's fitting that for a secret agent, much of her career remains shrouded in mystery. When Ellen Pinkerton would interview prospective female detectives, he would say this to them. In my service, you will serve your country better than on the field. I have several female operatives. If you choose to come on board, you will train with the head of my female detectives, Kate Warren. She has never let me down.
0: Now's the part of the episode where we get to chat with the history guy, a little bit about what we just heard, what we're going to hear, and some behind-the-scenes stuff you only get to hear about on the podcast. It took some real guts for a 23-year-old woman in 1856 to show up to take a detective job and not even just that but not just like any detective job but with the Pinkertons who were already a reasonably big deal in 1856 it it makes me think that she must have been quite a person to know and it really makes me wonder one of the things that we we talk, you talked about somewhat in this episode is the fact that we know so little about what she actually did and it makes you really wonder what else uh, what other kind of adventures and things like that she must have done that we just don't know anything about today
1: yeah. You know, and honestly, that could go both ways. I mean, in that what we know about her came from Pinkerton's books and uh, Pinkerton might have been embellishing in his books. So her life might have been more exciting uh, and we just have no idea uh, or her life might have actually been less exciting than was presented. Uh, we you know, we don't You like any other historical figure. We only have what we have. And especially for lesser known or forgotten history, then, you know, there wasn't a whole lot recorded at the time. But I suspect she was just an extraordinary person because she was taking extraordinary risks. But on the other hand, I think that's probably typical in that uh, I would imagine that there are a lot of especially women uh, who had much more significant contributions and those contributions weren't well recorded. Uh, And so there's probably a lot of them out there that had more exciting lives than we realize. And she's uh, she's an example of that. I certainly would love to have met her and see what she said like, because we don't even have a verified photograph of no. her the one the one painting is a drawing. Uh, and uh, there is one photograph where there's a a cavalryman or someone in a cavalry jerkin behind Pinkerton, and they think that actually might be Kate Warren. Uh, and but they're not sure. And so it's I mean, it's interesting uh, uh, that we don't even know for sure you know what she looks like. and and we only really have the story told by her boss who had reasons to tell it the yeah. way he told it. And so so we're uh, you can only get this sense that this is really an extraordinary personality. Uh, at a time when you know that's just not how women were expected to behave. Yeah, and it's it is interesting to think about what uh you know what Pinkerton might have said.
0: He was he was an interesting figure and I would say that yeah, I mean, he was not perfect. <laughs> that's what I'll say about Alan Pinkerton. He was he was not perfect. Uh but this was this was kind of an interesting part of his of his legacy is that he he really defended wanting, you know, women and the pinks. Uh in in detective work and it seemed like it seemed like that was something that that was very important to him
1: i mean he fought his he fought his uh brother on it uh, that he really yeah he's fighting his own agency on the idea yeah you know? and, and uh I think you know it's hard to say if he was just practically realizing that this was a, this was an untapped source that could be very powerful, uh, or if he you know if he was that was a cause ahead of time. It's kind of it's kind of hard to say. Or if
0: he was, I mean, trying to. It's hard to see with you know in terms of if he was being progressive, if he was trying to make that a part of his part of his story so that that so that people would look at that. I, I don't know. It's 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 really hard to know. Um, but I, I do wonder. I mean, not just Kate Warren is actually, in some ways, one of the female detectives we know more about, because there are oh, a number of. I mean, there were a number of them working for Alan Pinkerton. We know almost nothing about them
1: at all. Yeah, we don't even we don't even know their names. Yeah. yeah,
0: so it's it's interesting that she. I mean, Kate seems to have done a done a, done a wonderful job, and Alan Pinkerton seemed to think very very highly of her. Uh, you mentioned at the end of it where he he says that she never let me down, and she. Must have been quite good at what she did. I mean, the Pinkertons were pretty good at what they were doing.
1: They were well known. Yeah, they were they're the top in the world of what they were doing. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's uh, unscrupulous sometimes doing so. I mean, when you, when you talk about it, but uh, yeah, I, I think she must have been an extraordinary person. And I think it's that we only have sort of an echo of what that whole person was like uh, and the story that needs to be told. Yeah.
0: And you wonder how many stories there are there that are like that and how representative she is of a lot of people who didn't get to have anything written down
1: about them. they are get their stories told. Yeah. yeah. Well, especially and setting aside everything else. Uh, I mean, they are their detectives. I mean, there's reasons that they keep certain of the things that they were doing secret. Yeah. And so, you know, to that extent, uh, she probably was a secretive person and, and probably had to be. Uh, and uh, that's part of why we we don't get to know her.
0: Yeah, and that could speak to how good she was at doing what she did. It is. It's mm-hmm. too bad that there you know wasn't some kind of she didn't write a memoir or something afterward. But um, it's where you are. And it's just that you like you said we have what we have from history. And I think one of the one of the cool things that we really like to do on the history guys find find those stories and take what we do mm-hmm. have and, and find the story in there because there are so mm-hmm. many things that are were so exciting were life and death situations that have essentially been uh completely forgotten and that's and that's that's ignoring even some of the stuff we talk about that uh you know was just mostly forgotten <laughs> uh there's there's stuff that you know you find just a few articles about in the old newspapers that we've yeah. made stories out of
1: and and, we just, and historians will come out with a book every now and again as someone that was almost completely yeah. forgotten and they found some some good record and yeah. So, I mean, there's uh, sometimes we don't even know what we don't know. I mean, sometimes we know what we don't know. We know that there was someone there and yeah. we, you, we know what's information, but sometimes you don't even know what you don't know. Yeah. I mean, there are things that are that are truly forgotten. And one of the reasons that uh, we do what we do is to try to take, you know, what's almost forgotten and keep it from taking that last step yep. into, you know, we don't remember it anymore. And it's, I mean, this this story is such a good example of that because
0: even the Baltimore plot, which... If it was a real thing, um, which a lot of people argue it wasn't, but it's, it's really hard to know. I mean, Pinkerton certainly claimed to have some, some incredible evidence Mm -hmm. of it, but it's Pinkerton. So I I don't know if he was uh, making some of that stuff up in his, in his books or, you know, kind of exaggerating what it was, but it was at least important enough that, I mean, they convinced Lincoln to do something that he did not really want to do.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and Lincoln actually took some political heat yeah. for that, uh, and so I mean it's uh, that's an interesting bit. I mean you can see some of that reverberating in politics today yeah. too. I mean once you decide you don't like someone, then you can turn anything into you know into, into a reason to attack. So I mean no one would think twice though about uh, the Secret Service taking steps yeah. to protect from even a vague plot today, uh, but at the time I and mean, was kind of unheard of. No one would have thought of it, and so yeah, it's I mean that makes an extraordinary story in itself. Yeah. Uh, and how far that plot really went? I mean, there was a plot, but I mean, how far, whether the the plot had carried to the point where they were actually going to act that day—I mean, that's a, yeah. that's a real question. Uh, but I mean, if they had failed and he had been killed, we would remember it. Oh yeah, uh, it would. I mean, it just and, absolutely. If, or if they had succeeded because someone jumped in front of the you know the person with the with the gun or something like that. But uh, if if you succeed the way you know that they that they did it then you wouldn't know that you succeeded. You wouldn't know what you prevented because you kept it from happening. Yeah, and I mean, that
0: really could be, I mean, it could have been a very important uh, piece of history in terms of if, if there really was that plot. And it's it's just impossible to know uh, at this point how, how serious that plot was. I mean, there could have been people on the street who were considering it. Yeah, we
1: honestly, we don't know but i mean she played she played an interesting role in that interesting piece of, of, yeah. of it's i mean it, even at the time we don't know it so I mean, when you talk about forgotten history i mean we it, it wasn't even clear what happened then no
0: and they for years they have suggested that oh it wasn't as big and, but even uh you know, ward hill Layman, the the bodyguard didn't think there was anything to do with that but i don't i don't know it's it's just it's just hard to know about exactly how serious it was and if there were people in that crowd um that day who were disappointed that they didn't see Lincoln, not because they wanted to see a president, but because they were hoping to,
1: assa- they were hoping to, to kill certainly, him,
0: yeah. certainly the, uh, the mood in the country was at a point where, I mean, they could, uh, an assassination plot would not have totally shocked anybody uh, historian. Right. I mean, it was, it was a point where people were, I mean, tensions were high, but I, I don't know exactly. It's, it's just hard to know. I, I do know, you know, the Pinkerton agency uh, has a complex, <laughs> a complex legacy. A lot of it a lot of the prestige that they had gained, uh, even you know under Alan Pinkerton, he dies in 1884. Uh, they lost a lot of that with uh, unpopular actions mm-hmm. against uh, unions. And I, I mm-hmm. there's some evidence that you know Alan himself was not terribly pro-union uh, but the stuff the stuff that really that really hurt them happened all after his death and after the women detectives were were all disbanded. And I don't, I don't know if they would have made any difference, you know, in terms of how, how that stuff happened if they had still had women detectives. But I, I did think it's an interesting way to talk about, you know, what do you think about those kinds of historical contradictions, of which there are plenty of places where there are men who did incredible things, who also did maybe less incredible things.
1: It's part of the nature. I mean, I mean, there's nobody's perfect and uh, every story is going to have two different sides to it. But I mean, they were also what they were doing. I mean, they were it was a complex time. Uh, and so the, it's easy to see heroes and villains in either side. Uh, and so, uh, and I mean, there's a lot of different, I mean, they, they were aggressive in, in how they tried to enforce the law and that, you know, that creates, you know, disdain. But on the other hand, I mean, they were sometimes dealing with, you know, bad people. True. Uh, and uh, so, uh, I mean, I, I think I think first of all, any business is going to. I mean, they were taking business, right? Yeah. They weren't they weren't necessarily breaking the law at the time, but they were taking business, uh, and any business is is able to run afoul at least of public opinion because you do what you have to do in order to keep a profitable business, uh, and and yeah, and it's easy when you're doing a profitable business also to step across lines or to lose whole vision of those lines. Uh, and so there's a there's a lot of uh, I mean it's it happens I think in law enforcement but I mean there's everywhere you you look in history uh, you're going to find that everywhere there's a hero there's going to be something behind that hero that makes you wonder how did you yeah, and that's yeah. maybe part of how you rise to power so I mean I, when you when you talk about those contradictions I think part of it is kind of the nature of someone that's noteworthy and that part of becoming noteworthy it means that you're going to going to be walking in places where uh, people at least are able to question some of what you do yeah. And part of it is in just the ambiguous nature of life. I mean, if you you know, how far is it is it too far to go when you're trying to track down someone who's you know legitimately breaking the law, and or how much how much rights does uh, a mine owner have uh, to defend their interests, yeah. uh, and uh, uh, you know, so I. I uh, we try not to take sides in yeah. history, and, and, and we try to prevent, present an unvarnished version that, you know, shows how, you know, you see things from both sides. And I think if, you know, things didn't have both sides, our stories wouldn't be nearly as interesting. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, I mean, I, I have trouble going back, and, and I think you would certainly say that the Pinkertons did good. Uh, but I think you would also uh, would be able to look at some cases and say, hmm, you know, uh, uh, maybe the Pinkertons were very much stepping over lines at various times
0: it's an interesting it's it's an interesting thing that i think we see a lot of talk about is you know whether we should learn mm-hmm. uh, whether certain pieces of history should be remembered you know because if the pinkertons are you know bad guys maybe we don't want to remember any piece of them but it it is and i think you know part of our vision is that it is all history and Mm-hmm. That it really isn't, I mean, it just and, never and is and as black and white as we want it to
1: be. in an industry that hadn't been created. And so how do you even know where the lines were? I mean, a lot yeah. of the time they were the ones that were kind of making, helping to make that determination. They certainly played important roles in, in important chunks of history. Uh, and uh, I, you know, I, I can't judge on any specific instance because that's my, not my job as a historian. Yeah. All I can do is tell the story. Uh, And I think that most of us understand that if someone were to tell your story, that there probably would be parts of the story that would leave people thinking, you know, less of you and parts that would leave them thinking more of you. And I mean, that's that's what it is to be human.
0: Yeah. And and that's just true on a a larger collective sense for
1: humanity. Mm -hmm. But is I mean, you know, we honestly don't know if the agency would have been different if Alan Pinkerton had lived longer. We don't know.
0: No, there, and it's it's hard because once once we're in the position where we're at, where we can look back and, you know, we can judge these decisions and stuff like that, I'm not necessarily saying we shouldn't make, you know, some judgments. We is the, the kind of the universal we uh, as on pieces of history, but uh, but also it's, you can't change it once it's happened. And for us as Absolutely. historians, uh, it, telling the story, I think, is as important as. Uh,
1: Absolutely. I, I certainly am not saying that you shouldn't judge. Yeah. Uh, even though you know you could you know caution against some too much anachronism in your judgment. Uh, what I'm saying is the historian shouldn't judge. The historian should tell the story and you know leave it to others to judge the story. That's my vision of history. that's not everybody's vision of history. That's not how some historians work. No. Uh, but I mean, that's that's my idea. I, I my goal is to tell the history. Uh, and and to leave the judgment to, uh, to other people because history is what informs you and then you make your decisions from there. So if, if we're providing you know the, the premise that allows you to come to deductive reasoning that's fine. And if yeah. two different people come to different conclusion, that's fine. But you have to have a basis of fact to do that and that's what we're trying to do is to as much as we can present that basis of fact. and that's why you can talk about someone like Alan Pinkerton or yeah. everything that the agency did uh, and and uh, you know give it the whole context and then you know let people judge, However, they want to judge what that means today, I agree. I think that that's I think that that's
0: where our vision is, and i I really I mean, that's for me, I'm proud that that's kind of the the history that we tell is we're we're not trying to sugarcoat anything. We're not trying to make villains or heroes out of people. We're just trying to tell the story as it happened. Mm-hmm. And that does make me think of this story and other stories that we've talked about about making movies, uh, I think that Kate Warren, uh, we don't necessarily know enough about her specifically to make you know films but it makes me think that there are there's some stuff in here that could inspire some very cool she movies could, she could be a great heroine yeah. yeah
1: i think there was there was a canadian tv series sometime in the mid 2000s that was about the pinkertons i think she had a character in there yeah. uh but i mean yeah i mean it would be quite interesting to have you know a mystery in the west and have her as a as a protagonist yeah. I, you know i think that could be Uh, And uh, some of the stories, I think that actually that television series was really actually basing on Pinkerton's book and was supported by the agency. And they were they were actually telling true stories of the agency. Uh, But I mean, there could there could be actually some good fiction written out of this heroine as a character, too. And she was she Uh, was doing so much
0: and so many we we don't know much at all about what she was doing, you know, during the actual uh, Civil War. We know that they we know that Pinkerton acted when in, you know, in support of the
1: military. But we don't really know much about what her actions were specifically there. Yeah, I think there could be certainly something here, and it's another one of those. We're always saying that that the story of history is actually more interesting than a lot of what is done in fiction, yeah. and this is this is an example of that, and this is an example of a, a actual true character that could be a really fascinating character to you know, because what are her motivations to do what she was doing yeah. at the time that she was doing it, and how much risk did she take, you know, and and why was she willing to take on that personal risk? I think there's a really interesting story there. So I agree. I mean, it was it was a, it was a good story to tell in the History Guy, and I think it would be a good story for someone to tell if they wanted to tell it on. On the big screen. I
0: really agree. I hope to see something like that someday. Magellan TV is sponsoring this episode and they sponsor all of our podcasts. And if you've listened to the podcast, you know that what we like to do is talk about what we've been watching on Magellan TV lately. And so what have you been watching on Magellan TV?
1: Uh, you know, this morning I was watching something called Shoreline Detectives, uh, which is a series I- about the United Kingdom. It's got so much history. And so they just take a piece of shoreline and anywhere you find a shoreline in the UK, you're going to find lots of history. And they were looking like one of them was looking at an 18th century shipwreck. Uh, another one was looking at some medieval ruins, uh, as well as up to 19th century uh, lime kilns. <laughs> it's uh, an archaeology story an addition archaeology. Archaeology along the shoreline is always particularly interesting because the, you know, the ocean tends to wear away history and you have to go down and really dig in to find it. And that's particularly interesting to me in the UK where there's just such a length of history where you can stumble on things from pre-Roman times up to, you know, up to Napoleonic times that are all quite interesting. There's, I think, nine different episodes in the series and it's it's really fascinating because it says wherever little chunk of coast of England you go, you're going to find a lot of very interesting history. And it's one of the many things i love about magellan tv is that you can see something about almost anything that you you know if you want to if you want to see nature if you want to see history if you want to see whatever what have you been watching lately on magellan
0: tv so one of the things i was watching uh, this week was i i've been really interested and in, we finally got the james webb space telescope up and so i watched this this fairly short little documentary about a half hour that was talking about it's called planet hunting with the james webb space telescope and to be honest, it's kind of a primer for what we're going to be, what we will hopefully be looking at uh, when the James Webb Telescope starts, you know, bringing us information. Because I think there's a lot of stuff out there still to discover that we haven't even touched on. And uh, the James Webb Space Telescope is going to be able to see some stuff that we haven't been able to see. It's also going to be able to look at some of the stuff that we have found. And that's kind of what they talk about in this, is they talk about how the James Webb Telescope is going to be able to help us kind of look further back into the past using a uh, more sensitive infrared i think it looks it's looking forward to hopefully some truly incredible discoveries and kind of how we might be able to tell when we see these exoplanets i mean is there life there and how would we find that out and this the james webb is supposed to be more sensitive to some of that stuff hopefully i mean we might be seeing some really really cool stuff in the next you know decade or so in space
1: exploration that's amazing i love watching space stuff on magellan i really do for a historian first of all this is i mean this is as cutting-edge future as you can get Uh, but it's allowing us literally to look back in time. And there's such a great history of human space exploration and how we came to where we are and why we're always trying to do that. And what in human nature? I mean, the same thing that got people in a boat and asked them to sail you know, across an unknown ocean. It's an interesting piece of technology. Uh, like anything else happening today in 20 years, what are we con- gonna come back and say about the, 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 yeah. s- the Webb Space Telescope and what does it really mean to us? Because and, and, we don't know yet what it's gonna change, and that's just so exciting. It, it will be fun history at some point.
0: And of course, if you are a listener or watcher of The History Guy, you can always go to try.magellantv.com slash historyguy, where we will always have a deal for you, sometimes a free month or a deal on an annual membership, or even a documentary that you can watch for free. Again, that's try.magellantv.com slash historyguy. Next up, The History Guy talks about Big Nose Kate, the common law wife of Doc Holliday. And stay tuned after the episode to hear us chat a little more with the History Guy.
1: Virgil Morgan and Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday walked into history on October 26, 1881, when they exchanged gunfire with a group of outlaws in the town of Tombstone in the Arizona Territory. What happened there is fairly well known, but much less well known was the story of the woman who briefly accompanied Doc Holliday at his time there in Tombstone and who may have saved his life earlier in his career. Without her, Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday may not have walked side-by-side into the most famous gunfight in the history of the Wild West. Mary Catherine Horany, better known as Big Nose Kate, was another larger-than-life, colorful character of the Wild West, and hers is a story that deserves to be remembered. Her entire history is shadowy and may be full of tall tales. Some historians say Kate was born in Hungary, Slovakia in November 1849, others claim the year was 1850. Kate was one of several children. One story surrounding her family's immigration to Mexico says that her father, Michael Horney was a personal physician to Maximilian I, the Austro-Hungarian Archduke whom Napoleon III had installed as the Emperor of Mexico, and when the monarch's reign failed, Horney moved his family to Iowa. But there's little evidence to support that claim. Other historians say the family immigrated through New York City, like many others in that era, and wandered west, eventually settling in Iowa. Whatever the truth, Kate's parents died when she was a teenager at 14 or 15 and left her and her siblings without parents in Iowa. Unhappy with her situation, she ran away from the foster home that took her in and stowed away on a riverboat that was traveling down the Mississippi. In later memoirs, Kate claims that she was discovered by the riverboat captain on this trip and was taken under his wing. She began to use his last name, Kate Fisher, and enrolled in a school at a convent in St. Louis. Historians disagree over whether she graduated from the school, but her contemporaries say that she was smart enough to be successful at whatever she chose to do, although opportunities were somewhat limited for women at the time. She claims that in St. Louis she married a man named Silas Melvin and had a child with him, but both he and the child died of an illness, but again the historical record is unable to prove that claim. But it also appears to be in St. Louis where she first began working as a prostitute. It was there, some historians claim, that Kate first met a man named John Henry Holliday, who would go on to fame in the West with the moniker Doc Holliday. Holliday had recently graduated from a dental school in Pennsylvania, but could not yet get a license to practice because he was too young, not yet 21 years of age. Holliday was in St. Louis because a friend, A. Jameson Fuchs Jr., offered Holiday a job in his practice in the interim. Fuchs' office was only a few blocks away from where Kate was plying her trade. Holiday, with his Georgia drawl and legendary manners, was probably quite memorable to Kate among the other men she entertained. He returned to Georgia in 1872 to open his own dental practice, leaving her behind, plying her trade. After this, historians believe Kate was working as a prostitute in Dodge City, Kansas. We know Kate changed locations because there is documentation showing she was fined in Dodge City for being a sporting woman, which was what officials called prostitution at the time. She was working at a brothel owned by Nellie Earp, the wife of James Earp, who is one of the lesser-known Earp brothers. Throughout her busy life, Kate was known by many nicknames because of her marriages and reputation of moving from place to place. In addition to Big Nose, she was also known as Katie Elder, Mrs. John H. Doc Holliday, Nosy Kate, Kate Cummings, and Kate Melvin. The nickname Big Nose Kate was actually used by Wyatt Earp in an article he wrote for a San Francisco newspaper in 1896. Earp wrote that this wasn't a comment on her actual nose, but referred to her strong, bold character. He said she had a legendary temper and valued her freedom over most anything else. Despite numerous film depictions to the contrary, Kate wasn't particularly fond of Erp, and the feeling was reciprocated. She was not a blushing violet and never apologetic for her profession or her hard-drinking ways. The men around Kate may not have appreciated the way she didn't ask for permission to live the way she wanted to. They may also have been intimidated by her intelligence which holiday was known to have said was equal to his own in the 1870s kate was living with j.s elder a saloon keeper in wichita who gave her the surname made famous in the 1965 western film the sons of katie elder starring john wayne and dean martin she was arrested for prostitution in june of that year and that brush with the law may have encouraged her to move somewhere more friendly to her profession kate went upstream from dodge city to great bend and her protector, J.S. Elder, went elsewhere. Unfortunately, trouble found her again in Great Penn and Kate was fined $10 for assault and battery. She found another man to protect her, a saloon owner, gambler, and gunslinger named Tom Sherman, a man with a fearsome reputation. Sherman wasn't someone to mess around with. According to one story, after shooting a man in a gunfight, Sherman said to the people watching, I'd better shoot him again, hadn't I, boys? And he did, walking up to point Blake range to do so. Kate and Sherman wandered the west, going from town to town, seeking opportunities for both prostitute and gambler. She was working in Fort Griffith, Texas, when Doc Holliday blew into her life again. In the time since she had known him in St. Louis, Holliday had been shot in the leg and now walked with a limp. He had also picked up what people at the time called lung disease or consumption. Doctors today call it tuberculosis. It would eventually kill him, but in the meantime Holliday went west, seeking the drier climates that were believed to help those with his condition. Along the way, he was developing his own reputation for violence, and no patience for those he felt were shortchanging him. In addition to reuniting with Kate, it was at Fort Griffin that Holiday met Wyatt Earp, then a deputy U.S. Marshal who was on the trail of the notorious outlaw, Dirty Dave Rudabaugh. Holiday had played cards with Rudabaugh and described him as an ignorant scoundrel. It is entirely possible that Wyatt and Doc Holiday were introduced by Kate, who was probably already familiar with Earp, having worked at James Earp's saloon earlier in her career. Later, Earp told a story about what happened in Fort Griffin, which Kate said he embellished, but which actually showed her in a good light. According to Earp, Holiday was playing cards with a notorious gambler named Ed Bailey when things went awry. Bailey, apparently not trusting Holliday to play fairly, was looking through the discard pile after every hand. That was blatantly against the rules of the card game. Holliday asked Bailey to stop, and when he didn't, Holliday raked in the pot, apparently intending to leave. Bailey drew his gun to make Holliday put the money back, but Holliday gutted Bailey with a knife, killing him. The townspeople nabbed Holiday and threw him in jail, rumbling about ropes and murder. Kate jumped to Holliday's rescue by setting a huge fire to attract the town's attention, and then showed up at the jail, toting a gun in both hands, demanding Holiday's release. However the jailbreak happened, Kate and Holliday fled town and were at Dodge City, Kansas shortly thereafter. She claims that they married some time before arriving in Dodge City, and they uh, registered at the hotel there under the name Doctor and Mrs. Holiday, but like so many things in Katie's life, there's no evidence to prove that it actually happened. The registration might have been an attempt to lend some legitimacy to their situation. Now together, Holiday continued to work as both a dentist and a gambler, while Kate continued to practice the world's oldest profession. They continued on Western after Holiday was accused of burglarizing a store in Dodge City. His cough was becoming worse. They weren't tied down to any one place for very long. Holiday established a saloon in Las Vegas, New Mexico territory, but the town was already garnering a reputation for violence, so he sold up and the couple moved on. When the Earps encouraged Holiday to move to Tombstone, a rustic silver mining camp in Arizona territory, Kate lived elsewhere for a time, but joined him before the big shootout for which he is most well remembered. By some account she may have witnessed the shootout. Their relationship throughout their time together was tempestuous. Once, after a serious argument, Holliday's enemies took advantage of their estrangement and talked Kate into filing a false claim with authorities that Holliday had helped to rob the Benson stagecoach. She'd been very drunk at the time that she made the statement, but it was a very serious accusation. Two men had been killed in the holdup. The Herbs stepped in and provided witnesses proving Kate's statement false, but the damage to Kate and Holliday's relationship seemed permanent. They were never as close after that time. Things deteriorated further after town marshal Virgil Earp arrested Kate for disorderly conduct, and she left town, furious. Holiday died in Colorado in 1887. Kate married again in 1890 to George Cummings, a minor and, according to Kate, abusive alcoholic. They moved to Bisbee, Arizona, and Kate opened a bakery that failed. She divorced Cummings and moved in with Jack Howard, another minor. This final relationship seemed to be a good fit, as Kate put down roots and stayed with Howard for 30 years. Howard left her the home they lived in after his death in 1930. Aging and short of resources, Kate sold the home and applied to Arizona Governor George Hunt for permission to move into the Arizona Pioneer's Home in Prescott. The home had originally been established for aging and infirm men who settled the western frontier. They were also required to be American citizens, which Kate may or may not have been. It took her some time, but she was eventually given permission to move into the home. Kate was the first woman who was granted permission to do so. In her final years, she maintained active letter writing campaigns to political leaders in an effort to improve the lot of those who lived in the Arizona Pioneer's home. She remained feisty and outspoken to the end, died of heart disease in November of 1940. She's buried at the cemetery at the Arizona Pioneer's home in Prescott, Arizona. While she was at the Arizona Pioneer's home, several authors came to her offering to write her story. At first she was angry because they didn't offer her money, and then she was angry because the story never seemed to get written. But those conversations did tell us something about her relationship with Doc Holliday. She said of him, I loved Doc, thought the world of him, and he was always kind to me until he got mixed up with those Earps. One wonders what nickname Big Nose Kate used when she was referring to Wyatt Earp. She said of her life once, Part is funny, part is sad, such is life any way you take it. Very reminiscent of a quote about life that Doc Holliday gave when he said, there is no normal life, there is only life. And that famous couple represented life in the Wild West.
0: So, though they existed in very different worlds, both of these women, both named Kate, were active around the same time, and both of them Mm -hmm. ended up contributing, I mean, significantly to American history, and I think playing a part that... Even if it has been largely forgotten, is worth remembering.
1: Yeah, you you got to wonder if they bumped into each other, would they would they have liked each other? Would they have hated each other? I honestly don't. Know. That's a,
0: that's a good question because they they were both big personalities, and I I mean I think with with Big Nose Kate, what an impact on like cultural memory, and not just at the at the time, uh, but today with all the movies and stuff that've been made of made of it. Mm-hmm. What that impact of that shootout in Tombstone. It's incredible to think that, you know, Mm -hmm. that she played such a role in that and that the complexities of what it took to make that event, which is so iconic,
1: happen. It does. I I mean, she says, I mean, her, you know, being behind Doc Holliday, uh, it really says a lot about, I mean, when we focus a lot on the gunfights and the stuff that we've seen in Western movies, you miss what, what was life really like? What was culture really like in the West? And I think that she adds that huge depth to it. To understand that and and uh, that it wasn't just roaming cowboys that you know people had lives that they were trying to live lives that we would think of as normal lives today and including love and and including you know family and and uh, uh, and so it's really interesting to add you know that to the characters i mean because otherwise they're not you know they're two-dimensional they're dime novel sure. characters and and when you start to understand who they were as people is when you start to understand things like who they loved and how who they loved impacted them. And she's, you know, she's interesting. She's Enigma too, though. I mean, most oh, yeah. of the pictures that we have of Big Nose Kate, we're not sure that that's actually her. As a matter of fact, it's not even really clear if she was called Big Nose Kate because her nose was actually big or if because she was a nosy person. We've gotten both stories there. We, we are dealing with, uh, you know, a bit of a fuzzy storyline behind the, but but you start to see really the personality that comes yeah. out behind that and then how that personality was part of these other big, better-known personalities from the time. Well, and it's amazing to
0: think, you know, she she played a, a very important role with some some figures that are really well-remembered in American history, but there are so many characters like her that were existed around all of those people, and were also just trying to live their lives. I mean, you know, every mm-hmm. we, we don't talk about it a lot, but every single day, you know, we've got to come up with what we're going to eat, and we've got to know how we're going to pay our bills, and all that kind of stuff. And, I mean, everyone else... Mm-hmm. through history was worrying about that stuff too
1: I was worrying about and and doing it in different contexts when you yeah. had to do different things in order to to be able to do that yeah so i mean again it, it makes it takes it and takes it from the movie to you know this is these are real people living real lives and yeah. and living them as best they could in the situations that they could
0: yeah and i i mean i think that big nose kate ultimately her story is a is a good example of that that saying uh, behind every great man is a great woman and while she wasn't behind Doc Holliday the whole time, uh, she was an incredible personality who clearly played an important mm-hmm. role in his life. And I, I think it's really amazing to yeah. think, you know,
1: Although, again, it's it's hard to say if you would want to call either of them great. Oh I mean, yeah, they were both. That's also a fair point. With real foibles, yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, but it's interesting how I mean everything that makes him such a fascinating character, you can yeah. absolutely see in her, and you can see how they must have been uh, quite a pair.
0: And how they—I mean, how they were attracted to each other and connected to each other—it's interesting too to see the all of the various personalities. And she wasn't really a fan of of Wyatt Earp, and uh, well, vice versa. And it's it's all those kind of characters that you know they were all living regular. They weren't all just superheroes. I mean, they which I think is what we get in a lot of those western movies—is that these were gunslinging. Uh, people who had did were heroes and had those and even if they had you know foibles or whatever they they still had these like these uh, hugely important moral compasses or whatever you know we were looking at in those and the the truth is is that you know all of them were facing life in a very chaotic
1: world mhm it was yeah, and a world of so much change. Yeah. One of the things that when you really get to know, I mean, for all that we talk about in movies and things like that, what you really see when you look at the life of, of Doc Holliday and White Earp is, is two guys who over their lifetime, uh, the world changed so much. I mean, what they did to make a living when they were in their 30s Uh, was no longer even acceptable behavior by the time they were in their 50s. And they had to figure out how to keep living in that. And to see that period of change, that weird overlap between the frontier and the modern world uh, and uh, between the whole change of sensibilities, which is, you know, what was... Was Big Nose Kate a respectable woman? I mean, that, that depends on the era that you're talking about. And she crossed over those eras. And, and so you, people would judge her very differently. Yeah, uh, And uh, so, I mean, this, it is a fascinating time to look at, not just because of the, the exciting part of the Wild West, but because this was, this was kind of the end of that frontier. And, and the, the new world was kind of moving in on that. And you see you know, how that caught people in the middle who had lived in one world and were then essentially thrust into the next
0: and they didn't have they didn't have anywhere to go it when you know when that uh, yeah. when that frontier starts to starts to close I mean, there comes a point where the, the way that they could you know kind of exist as a...
1: yeah. i mean that that affected that affected both of them yeah. of course bat masterson who was was one of widerup's deputies in dodge ended up a baseball sports writer. I mean, yeah. it's just, it's a very, you know, it's, it's astounding to think of how that change occurred.
0: Yeah. That those two things could be within just a few decades. I mean, we've seen a lot of change, yes. you know, in our own in, lives. In the
1: same but... career. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. So I mean, I we think a... we've seen change because our, because our cell phones got thinner and uh, to understand how much things changed in that period uh, in at the end of the 19th century uh, in terms of, of technology and culture and society. I mean, worldwide, but especially in the United States yeah. too, where Parsons, united states were still just being populated yeah. and and parts of the united states were as urbane as any place in the world yeah that's that shift between say um i mean
0: 1860 and 1890 that period where mm-hmm. whole sections i mean there were states uh, you know when wyoming was uh, first they, they organized the territorial ter- territorial government in the, the 1869 and there were like five thousand people in the whole state And then Mm -hmm. by 1890, I mean, there were, you know, there were over 60,000 in Wyoming and Wyoming is the still the least populated state, but all these other places went from being places where there was literally no one and you were, you were building a house with your own hands to, I mean, honestly, the mail order catalogs got to a point where you could order, you could order stuff that could not possibly have been carried over by, you know, your parents to the same location. Yep. and it's it's incredible how how much that
1: changed, and it's. I think this is a an interesting way to look at how much, how how much at the it. railroad changed that, how much industrialization yeah. changed that, how much the well the impacts of the Civil War changed that, uh, and you know think about that change for the Native Americans. Yeah, uh, think about that change for African Americans. I mean, how much different was life between 1860 and 1890? Uh, if if you were if you were born black in the South in 1850. Yeah. Uh, and you were still around in 1890. I mean, how much had, had the world changed? Wow. But also, if you were, you know, if you were born in Ireland and did you come across? And I mean, it 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 was it was a period where I don't know that anybody could even really, you know, grasp what world they were still in, uh, uh, because it had changed so so very dramatically. And one of the ways that you see that is in these these Wild West heroes who seem to be have a foot in two worlds. I mean, it, yeah. it's, it's it's hard to imagine. Uh, that we had people still out, you know, slinging guns in the Wild West. Uh, uh, when if you go look, you know, in, at what was going on in the East at the time. So yeah. it's 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 really interesting to talk about the West. It really is. And it's interesting to talk about, you know, what it took to go and try to populate a frontier and, and how different social norms work and what was acceptable were and, and uh, you know, violence very much more common. Yeah. Uh, and it's it, it is really an interesting time to talk about. And of course, it's been mythologized a lot through our popular culture. Uh, but it is at, truly uh, historically a fascinating time to study because it represents a time where we literally can see the movement from from unpopulated wildland to frontier to city life. And yeah. And you see that over just a few decades where I mean, th- where suddenly these cities now look just like you know modern cities today. Yeah. it's just kind of hard to imagine that shift over yeah
0: yeah I think it's I think it's just such an interesting thing to look at and I think these people end up being good examples of what it was like to live through that and to to mm-hmm. really go from a place where you know you could you could do the things like you said that, that what was acceptable behavior what was just a reasonable thing yeah. to do in eighteen sixty was suddenly a completely uh, unacceptable or a completely out of place thing to do mm-hmm. in
1: 1890 and it's i mean that's amazing and i in 1890 yeah and so what's and that's what you learned to do for that you couldn't you couldn't gamble for a living anymore yeah. it was no longer respectable you yeah you know and and that's that that that's how both of them made their money for a very yeah. long period of time and that's what they would always rely on if something fell through is that and, and suddenly you know that's that's gone were they heroes or were they yeah. villains they came from a time when people danced those lines all the time oh yeah uh, and when the, yeah. the line before someone who's who's uh Who's just a, uh, a a cowboy that's herding cattle, a cowpoke, and then you know the next season they maybe are a rustler, and and uh, and it's in between someone who many of the people that enforced the law were certainly criminals before, yeah, uh, and uh, you know some of the people that arrested bank robbers had robbed banks, and and, and so this is it's a time when yeah. that was all that uncommon. Uh, And it wasn't all that uncommon to have a relationship like Doc Holliday and Big Nose Kate did where they were uh, maybe never married, uh, where she was maybe married to somebody else, where, you know, where their relationship kind of wandered in and wandered out. And that was that was not uncommon.
0: It was uh, it just was a chaotic time. And it's a time
1: that was, I think it's so it, different. It from makes for we've... this interesting story that's probably yeah. truly a love story. I mean, in the way that they stayed yeah. together for the period that they did. Uh, and uh, so, I mean, that's I think that's Despite one of the reasons everything. why people have enjoyed it in popular culture. And I think that's one of the reasons why uh, it was fun to tell as the story for the history guy.
0: And I, I, I kind of think that, you know, both of these women were... Must have been just an incredible force of personality. <laughs> uh, both of yeah. them, although they ended up living such you know such different lives. I mean, they, they faced the world and they refused to let it tell them how they were going to live their lives. And yeah. I big, well, knows, but I mean, they
1: both also took risks. That, that's also true. Uh, uh, Risk with their lives that women weren't expected to yeah. take. Uh, that that probably said a lot about them. I think I think you had to be an incredibly brave woman for your name to even carry through from the period. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and and both of their names, these two Kates did. And they, you know, they and you find that in other, you find that. I mean, like you know, later in life, uh, Big Nose Kate is arguing for the people that are in the Arizona Pioneers home, and I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's clear that she stayed a, a a powerful personality to the end of her days.
0: Yeah, she was never she was never going to put up with something just just because. And that's mm-hmm. I mean that's it's an amazing thing, and it's amazing to know that you know these people have have always existed and have always been willing. To fight for whatever it is they wanted to do, and sometimes, I mean, there were always obstacles. But both of them, and they—they they both had their share of uh, of setbacks. But ultimately, you know, they they lived a life, and it's incredible for us to look back and see just what it must have taken for them to live the life that they lived. Uh, one other thing I wanted to ask, and it's a—it's uh, a little more personal, but I know that you—you you know, you and I write stories about all kinds of different history. But I wanted to ask you, you know, do you have a special interest in Western history?
1: I, I mean, uh, of course, because I'm American. I grew up in the United States. I mean, I don't know if it's as interesting, you know, somewhere else, because this is this is just something as, as quintessentially American history as you can get. Uh, and yeah, I grew up, uh, I think I've said lots of times that one of the reasons where I d- developed my love of history is that my dad was always watching John Wayne movies, and, and you know that's yeah. that's part of how I got interested in history. And of course, John Wayne made a whole lot of Westerns. Uh, so I, I, I think so. I mean, I, I think that there's, uh, that I find a fascination, but I think it's a fairly common fascination in America because that's just this interesting part of our history that in many ways... Americans still kind of define ourselves as the Wild West. And, that, and I, that, that affects a number of things that are kind of different about how America sees the world than a lot of our peers do. Uh, and that's, it's from a his, history standpoint, it's not only that it's interesting history and interesting personalities and good stories, but it also says a lot about how we identify ourselves as Americans. I mean, that, that, that frontier attitude that
0: we're going go mm-hmm. to go these, to
1: these places
0: that are difficult to survive in and we're going to make, we're going to carve out whatever life. We can make out of it. I mean, yeah, those are.
1: Yeah, well, but also the rugged individualism, the, uh, you know, you don't. I think a lot of the world sees us as, as you know, uh, relatively anarchist, not thinking that we need as much government. Well, that's because we have this relatively recent period that we still remember, yeah. uh, where people moved beyond government uh, and they had to be, you know, their own version of the law. And that I think still is part of how people judge Americans today. That you know, Americans see that because that that's that's how we remember, you know, building the nation. That we well, have. That's a central and, piece to that that kind of American mythology yeah. of what what makes America America it is and it defines so much of of who we are as a people and and uh, both in terms of our of our crimes and our virtues of the past too uh, and so it's it's you know it's it's hard to say. I mean, what would have it been like if we hadn't moved west? If we had just chosen the you know not to go challenge the Great Plains, uh, and uh, that's I mean that's an, an interesting counterfactual. Yeah. But I mean, we did, and it became a big part of who we are. And and there's still people in America who are living on the land that yeah. their that their ancestors you know uh, came and put four stakes around and, and improved that land under the Homestead Acts. Uh, and turned it into the, the modern nation that it is today. Yeah, and that 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 attitude kind of carries along.
0: And that comes with, I mean, you know, there there are lots of places where you can criticize uh, America in that period as well. But it's it's one of those things that even you know even if you do criticize it, it's a it's a deeply integral part of you know that tapestry of American history, and it's something it that you have to yeah. you have to talk about and you have to face. And I mean, ultimately, these were all people who uh, contributed to the America and the, the world that we know today.
1: Mm -hmm. yeah you can see I mean again you know it's uh, I I don't mean to make any judgment on it you can say a lot of things about the American expansion in the west but you certainly can't say that it was an exciting time that was full of stories that are are worth telling
0: thank you for listening to this episode of the History Guy podcast we hope you enjoyed this episode of Forgotten History and if you did you can find more on our website thehistoryguy.com We release podcasts every two weeks, so stick around if you want to hear more podcasts of Forgotten History. You can also find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon. You can even get a personalized message from the History Guy himself on Cameo.